How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of God abides forever. Before we begin our study of God's word, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. So we always have a few minutes of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity that we have in a free nation to gather together and study your word. We thank you for the way you continue to protect and provide for this nation. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect us from those who would seek to destroy this nation, that you would give our security forces the wisdom and the skill in order to uh, capture those who would seek to bring uh, weapons of mass destruction into this country. Father, we pray for our leaders that you would give them wisdom and courage to do what needs to be done in order to stop the growth of evil and those who would seek to destroy the West. Father, we pray that you would continue to give us as a nation uh, people the freedoms to teach the word and people who would be responsive and that we might continue to send out missionaries throughout the world and that we might continue to support Israel. Father, now as we gather to study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and gain a greater appreciation for the salvation that you have provided for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began a new study on salvation. And the thrust last week was to look at a few questions. We started by looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, where... The writer of Hebrews asks the question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Throughout the scriptures, there's the emphasis that believers should take time to reflect on and meditate on and to think profoundly about what took place on the cross. It is, as we have seen in 1 John 3, uh, 16, that 3.15, that this is a, it is by this, by the cross, that we know what love is. It is at the cross that we learn what man is. We learn much about God's love for mankind. It is at the cross that we learn the model for how we as believers are to uh, treat one another. So we need to take time to understand our salvation. It's also important for us to understand what the Scriptures teach about salvation because we live in a day when there is much confusion about salvation. There's much confusion about what the Bible teaches. There are people abroad who uh, are in the guise of uh, sheep and pastors who are teaching false doctrines, who are use the key words of Scripture like grace and God's love and talk about the gospel and will even use phrases like uh, faith alone in Christ alone. But yet they really import works into their whole system of salvation. We have to understand the dynamics of what the Scripture teaches, so I'm approaching this from the, question, from the viewpoint of asking several questions. First of all, what is salvation? We covered that last time, and we saw that salvation is based on the Hebrew noun uh, or verb yasha and the noun Yeshua in the New Testament verb sozo and means to deliver. And specifically, when it's applied to salvation in the spiritual realm, it is deliverance from the penalty of sin. Second question is, why does God save us? Why does God care about saving us? That is the question we're in the middle of now. Third, what are we saved from? Understanding the penalty and the dynamics of that penalty. Fourth, what are the mechanics of salvation? Fifth, asking the question, how are we saved? Is it by works? Is it by faith? Is it by a combination of faith and works? How is it that we are saved? 
Who saves us? Is it God? Is it man? Is it a cooperative work? Who saves us? What does it mean to be saved? How does the scriptures use, scripture use the term? On what basis are we saved? How does the death of Christ save us? Then what are the conditions of salvation? How is it that salvation is applied? How is, is the work of Christ applied? When are we saved? When does that take place in our life? When does salvation occur? Then the question related to eternal security, can salvation be lost? Furthermore, why doesn't God save everybody? If the Scripture says that God desires that all be saved, why doesn't he save everyone? Then can we have a 100% certainty of our salvation? What is the doctrine of assurance? What is assurance based on how can we know for sure that our destiny is heaven? And then we looked at uh, the question, what must we believe to be saved in terms of the irreducible minimum of the gospel? What is it that we believe in order to be saved? Now, last time we began with the question, what is salvation? And we saw that the verb, sozo, is used of a past tense, present tense, and future tense in the New Testament. For example, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace... You have been saved, past tense. You have been saved through faith and not by works. Uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So there are three stages of salvation. The word sozo is used to describe each of them. And you always have to be careful when you read the Bible and it talks about salvation. What does it mean? See, in our modern evangelical churches, we often think of salvation as being delivered from the penalty of sin and not ending up in the lake of fire. But the word has three usage in the scripture. It refers to that moment when we put our faith alone in Christ alone and we are justified. So that's justification salvation. Then we have passages like Philippians chapter 2 where it talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, where salvation has to do with the ongoing uh, application of doctrine in the believer's life where we are uh, saved or sanctified. That's sanctification salvation. And then there is the third phase, which is when we are absent from the body, face-to-face -face with the Lord, and that is glorification salvation. Uh, Romans chapter 5 talks about the fact that we have been justified so that we will be saved. It is a future tense concept. So at phase one, we say that we are saved from the penalty of sin. We no longer are destined for the lake of fire. In phase two, the sanctification or the spiritual life, we are being saved from the power of sin. We still have a sin nature that's every bit as powerful as it was before we were saved. We're still prone to the same sins. In fact, we might even uh, be more tempted than we were before we were ever saved. And then... We will be saved from the presence of sin. So these are the three stages of salvation, and you always have to distinguish those stages. Well, that was what we covered in our answer to the question, what is salvation? And then we came to the next question, which is, why should God save man? Why does God save the human race? And there are many different ways we can approach this answer, but I want to ground it in the nature of man as being created in the image of God. And in order to do that, we have to understand something about the creation of man in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and what the Scripture says about the very nature and purpose of mankind. Under point number one, we saw in Genesis 1-1 the statement, In the beginning, God created. God created. He is distinct from his creation. There's a point in time when God creates the universe. There's a point in time when God creates the earth. There's a point in time that God creates the human race. So we can say under point number one that God created the human race and defined its nature, function, and limitations. God created the human race and defined its nature, function, and limitations. As the creator, God has the right to determine what man is going to be like. He, he defines his nature, uh, his characteristics. He defines the roles of the human race, roles for men and roles for women. 
there is distinct function. He has a purpose for the human race. He defines that purpose. Man, the creature, doesn't come along and generate from his own experience what he thinks his role should be, what he thinks his function should be. He is what he is because God made him that way, and he is to function the way he is to function because God made him a certain way. And there are limitations on the creature. As a creature, he is necessarily finite. As a creature, he is necessarily finite and restricted. So we have to understand those limitations. As such, he is to operate within the parameters that God defines. So that's all covered under point number one, that God created man and defines man. God is the God who is distinct from the universe. We said last time he's distinct from the universe and all that is in it. He is not part of a chain of being or the cycle or circle of life. He is the one who determines the nature of reality. Reality is what God says it is. A tree is a tree because God created it the way it is, and then God called it a tree. When God, in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the universe and he creates the darkness. He separates the light from the darkness. He calls the light day and he calls the darkness night god defines the terminology he sets the categories after he creates the various species which the bible refers to as kind they're not exactly parallel but each creature replicates reproduces after its own kind god sets the boundaries he has the right to do that because he is the creator he is the one who establishes certain terminology, certain verbiage. He defines what the issues are. Often I, I um, hear people say, well, I, I want the Bible to be relevant. And I used to hear that when I was in seminary, that we need to teach and make the Bible relevant. And I thought, you know, that's, that's really not looking at it the way it should be looked at. The issue is not making the Bible relevant to man, but making us relevant to God. You see, man departed. From God, and the reason most people want, most people come to church and they want a pastor to scratch whatever is itching them at that particular point in time, whatever their problem is in life. Maybe it's a marriage problem or a work problem or some emotional problem, and they want to go away feeling good, rather than learning how to think as God wants us to think, which is the purpose of Scripture: is to teach us how to look at reality as God has defined it. And God gave us the Scriptures, and the Scriptures represent His thinking in first corinthians chapter 2 16 we're told that the scriptures are the mind of christ and as such they represent the totality or not the totality but they represent a unified uh the unified thought of god and what god thinks in terms of every category of human existence it gives us that then that framework for understanding god so we as sinners have departed from God and our thinking is screwed up, our thinking is distorted, it's been shaped by worldly thinking, it's been shaped by human experience and human ideas and human philosophies. And the problem is that, that we don't let God define the problem. We come into church and we say, this is my problem, God address it. And the issue is to sit down and to let the Scriptures define what the problem is. And then once you understand how it is properly defined by God, then we can understand what the proper solution is. But we have to first let God define what the real problem is. And we start from the Scriptures and not from our experience. So we start with God as the Creator who defines the role, uh, function, and nature of mankind as well as his limitations. Second point we covered last time was that God created man in his own image. This is found in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man, and the word in the Hebrew is Adam, meaning mankind. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, the issue here is to understand what it means that man is created in the image of God. There are two uh, key phrases here. Number one, uh, in our image or in the image of God. And the second phrase is according to the likeness of God. 
And we noted last time that the phrase image and likeness, as it's set up here in terms of Hebrew grammar, uh, it, they're, they're synonymous terms. Image and likeness are synonyms, and they parallel one another. There's not, it's not an image or, or, or a, uh, an image that's a likeness. It is, these are parallel or synonymous concepts. Now, in, in uh, the history of theology, there are different ways in which theologians have tried to define the image of God. The first is that they view it functionally. This is related to what man is to do, that he's to rule over creation. So that's what image means. It means to rule over creation. And the terminology that we find here in Genesis 1.26, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the cattle over all the earth, as well as terminology found in Psalm 8, 5 to 6, indicates that this is part of man's function. He is to rule over creation. Notice that not only does Genesis 1-1 draw a distinction between God as the creator over his creation, but Genesis 1:26 and 27 draws just as harsh a line between man as the image bearer of God, the image of God who is to rule the creation, and all other life forms. Man is not in a chain of being with all other life forms. He is distinct a distinct life form. He is not related to the animals. I know that's a tough one for PETA to understand, and we all appreciate the fact that you have to treat animals in a responsible manner and uh, should not be unduly cruel to animals. But animals are animals. They are not people. And we, the Bible draws a clear distinction for that. But see, folks like PETA, that's the, for those of you who don't know, that's the animal rights crowd. The, for folks like PETA, the Bible is terrible because, of course, the first thing that happens after man sins is that God has to kill an innocent lamb in order to provide a sacrifice. And that's just so terrible. So there, from the very get-go, you see their presupposition is that, that that can't be right. So, therefore, this can't be what God is like because that's cruel. It's because they start from a presupposition that there is no distinction between man and other forms of other animals. But man is not viewed as an animal in the Scriptures. He is distinct because he is in the image of God. So there's the functional view. And then there's the relational view, which emphasizes the image as giving us the ability to relate to one another and to relate to God. But And then there is the uh, substantive view, and that is the more correct view, and that is that the image is in man and that man in his immaterial essence is reflective of the character or qualities or essence of God. And what we would say is that because man is created in his immaterial essence, in his soul, as a reflection of God and to reflect God, that that is what determines his function and his ability to relate. So it's not like function and relationship don't have anything to do with the image, but they are results. They are not the uh, core idea re- related to image. So man is created in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We discover point number three, that man is made in the image, and this is the Hebrew phrase betsalmenu, and according to the likeness, and that's the Hebrew kidmutenu, betsalmenu is, is B-E-T-S-A-L-M-E-N-U, and kidmutenu is K-I-D-M-U-T-E-N-U. Now, the first word, betsalmenu, has to do with being in a likeness, a resemblance, or a representation of God. So man is created to represent God. And by looking at man in his immaterial essence, you get some idea of what God himself would be like. That's the connotation of being in the image of God. And Kidmutenu says it has the idea of being a likeness or a similarity. So man is analogous to God. 
Image, therefore, describes not the physical aspect of man, point number four, not the physical aspect of man, but the composition of his soul, the composition of his uh, character. And this is found, I think we can support this a couple of different ways. In Genesis chapter 5, after Adam begins to have children, we're told that he has children and they are in the image of Adam. But it doesn't stop there. See, there are, and, and Reformed theology, and we'll get into the implications of this later, but I want to make the statement now and we'll talk about its significance later. But in Reformed theology and, and uh, hyper-Calvinism, the image of God is, for many Calvinists, the image of God is eradicated at the fall. Now, there's a difference between having the image of God eradicated at the fall and having the image of God defaced at the fall. Those are two different issues, and they have tremendous implications in how you understand uh, salvation. And we will look at those implications eventually. But you see, even though Genesis 5 talks about Adam uh, having children in his own image, by the time we get down to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where God authorizes capital punishment in the Noahic covenant, God states, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So it's still talking about the image of God at the time of the flood, and that that's the reason that capital punishment should be executed, not because it's a deterrent, not because it's a... Uh, serious crime, not because it's to indicate that these people need to be removed from society, but because ultimately man is so valuable and man is a reflection of God that the murder of another human being is like an attack on God. It indicates something in the soul of the murderer that has become so uh, deformed because of sin, that that individual needs to be removed. And God, in his omniscience, knew that man would uh, inappropriately apply the death penalty. Man, God, in his omniscience, knew that man would uh, unjustly apply the death penalty. But man, God, in his omniscience, knew that that was necessary to provide order and stability in a national entity. So despite the fact that man is going to make mistakes, despite the fact that human institutions, courts, and governments are, are fallible, God still uh, delegated this authority to man. It's a very serious responsibility, that one that should be taken seriously and one that should be applied consistently. So Genesis chapter 9 reinforces the idea that mankind is still in the image of God. Now, point five, these terms explain not merely that man is in the image of God, the term being created in the image of God, Betzal Menu, and being in the likeness of God, Kedmutenu. These terms explain not merely that man is in the image of God, but that he is the image of God. Now, that's an important distinction to make. Because the fact that man is the image of God means that man is designed in such a way as to be a representative of God. So that if you can't look at God who is immaterial and who is a spirit, then mankind is to be a representative of God, not only in his very nature, but in terms of his function. Because man is set over the creation. So we could, we could uh, put it on a chart like this. Here's the earth, and on the earth you have the creation made up of land animals, sea creatures, and creatures of the air, birds. Over all of creation, God has set mankind. So mankind is to rule the creation in God's place. So God creates mankind and sets him over creation, gives him a responsibility to rule and reign over creation and to use it 
in a responsible manner. See, that's the difference between the kind of environmentalism that is so often practiced today and biblical, uh, biblically, biblically endorsed responsible use of the environment. See, they may end up at places saying the same thing, that you don't want to uh, pollute the land, you don't want to pollute the air, you don't want to pollute the sea, but it comes from completely different reasons. And the um, and what happens in typical environmentalism is that the land, the sea, the air are all elevated to such a high level that they are equal to man, and so you can't ever develop anything technologically that might have negative consequences on the land. This is what happens in primitive societies where they operate on pantheism, where the earth and nature is equal to man. You never saw American Indians develop any technology. You never saw Aborigines in South America or Africa or in Australia develop any kind of technology because they look at themselves as part and parcel of nature. But because of the consequence of biblical thinking on Western civilization, you see the development of genuine technology after Greek civilization and the advance of genuine technology because you have the understanding that God creates the natural resources for man to use and develop, but it should be done in a responsible manner. So man is in the image of God, and he is to rule over creation. Now, as we've studied before, in the ancient world, they had a treaty form called the Suzerain-Vassal Treaty Form. And in case you have forgotten how to spell that, Suzerain is spelled S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N, and Vassal is V-A-S-S-A-L. The Suzerain is the great king. For example, during the time of the Hittite Empire, the Hittites had their empire, and then they would have various uh, city-states or vassal countries that were on the border, and they would enter. the great king would enter into a treaty with the vassal and say, as long as you protect my borders, as long as you watch over my uh, merchants as they go out on the trade caravans, as long as you take care of them, then I will do certain things to protect you. I will send my armies in there to defeat your enemies. I will supply certain things for you, uh, but you do what you do what I ask you to do, and then I will bless you. So that's the concept of the suzerain vassal treaty. The vassal then that if here's the main empire, you have your satellite vassals. That satellite vassal represents the great king, the suzerain. So he is a representative, and he is to carry out the wishes of the suzerain. Well, that's the imagery that you have in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, is that God is the great king, man is the vassal, and that he is to fulfill the, the function, the role that God has assigned to him. And so uh, in the ancient world, this terminology of being in the image of the great king was used in those treaties. So that helps us to understand the framework that God has here. Now, Man is in the image of God. He is designed to represent God, to rule over over the creation. And then the next thing we learn about this is that it has to do with the function. That point number six, man was thus created to fulfill the role as God's vicegerent. A vicegerent is someone who rules in the place of someone else. Man was thus created to fulfill the role as God's vicegerent his personal representative and ruler over creation. So what man is, is inseparably linked to what he is to do. He is to rule over the creation. He is to rule over the creation. So mankind has a role. He is designed to carry out that role. And God gives him a physical body to enable him to fulfill that mission. Now, here's something else about the physical body of man. In eternity past, billions and billions of years ago, God knew all the knowable. Under the category of the omniscience of God, God knows all the knowable. 
There's nothing that God did not know. His knowledge is not derivative. It is immediate. God's knowledge is exhaustive, and it is intuitive. That means that God instantly has always known everything there is to know, and he knows all the possible as well as all of the actual. So God knew that if he creates a creature, to put this in a little bit of an anthropomorphic form, God knew that 10,000 years ago I'm going to create a creature. I'm going to give that creature free will. That creature will disobey me under any and all possibilities. That creature eventually exercises his will against me. I will have to provide a salvation for that creature, and in order to do that, I will have to take the form of that creature, and I will have to become one with that creature in order to pay the penalty as a substitute for his sin. So God, billions of years ago, knows that when he creates this creature, man, he is going to have to become finite. He is going to be ha- have to enter into human history and become a man. Well, if God is going to become a man, and part of that role was to demonstrate who God is, remember John 1, 14 tells us that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, he has explained him. That Jesus Christ, when, when, when Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is going to be incarnate, God is going to say, God in eternity passes says, now what kind of a body do I want to show up in? What kind of a body do I need that when I create this body, when I become this creature, it will be a body that will allow me to manifest myself in all of my glory and all of my character the highest and best possible way. So God designs the human body that he gave Adam knowing that eventually he's going to have to enter into that same body, and that same body is going to have to do the duty of being able to be a finite replica of an eternal, infinite, holy, righteous God. Now, that will blow your mind when you start thinking about it that way. God didn't make us look the way we do physically simply because that was a nice functional form. It is a nice functional form, but the function is because it's designed to be the house of the of the eternal God when He became incarnate. So it is a it is a body that is designed, and it is a mentality that is designed to be able to fulfill the role that God assigned to it. So we are made in the way we are, with the abilities that we have, with the soul that we have, in order to fulfill the mission of ruling over the creation. That's defined by two words, rada meaning to rule, R-A-D-A-H. Rada means to rule, which means to have dominion, to rule, or to dominate. Now, to dominate is not the same thing as to domineer. Look it up in the dictionary. To dominate means simply to rule over, to be in a position of authority over. To domineer means to do it in a tyrannical manner. But there's a difference in the term. Just because they're they're based on the same root doesn't mean they have the same connotation. So ruling has to do with responsible dominion. And then second, we are to subdue the earth, that is, to bring it under control. And that began when Adam started naming the creatures. He had no idea what these creatures were, and God started bringing them to them, and Adam had to observe them, just like any scientist. He had to to make notes. He probably had, uh, in order to remember everything that he was doing, all the names he was giving these creatures, he probably invented writing on the spot. Remember, Adam was brilliant, so he invents some way of writing. And he begins to note the differences between various kinds, and he begins to name the animals. That's the starting point. We're still in that process of discovering, observing, noting, defining, distinguishing between various things. But God initiated vocabulary and categorization in Genesis 1, and then Adam carries that, starts carrying that out in the application of the uh, task to name the animals. That's what it means to subdue the earth, to begin to bring it under control. You can't control anything until you understand it in terms of its categories, in terms of the strengths and weaknesses of anything. That's why you go to school. That's why going to school sometimes is painful, is because you're trying to bring under control a vast amount of knowledge. So man is created to understand control and master the creation. That indicates that 
something about image has to do with intellectual ability and decision-making. You have to decide, what am I going to name these animals? So we see right away that part of this imageness will have something to do with thinking and will have something to do with making uh, decisions. Now, another thing that we observe from this is that man and woman together represent God on earth. They are both in the image of God. They are both on the team. They have different roles on the team. Just because they're both on the team that's designed to uh, win the Super Bowl doesn't mean that every player on the team has the same role. If every player tries to act like the quarterback, then that team is not going to win the Super Bowl. But everybody on the team, male and female, every, both male and female, are created in the image of God. However, they have different roles to fulfill in terms of the creation. The male was given the primary task of ruling, and the woman was created in order to be his aidser, his helper, his assistant, uh, Genesis 2 says. Now, in modern uh, human viewpoint thought and feminism, uh, women have been taught to think that the role of a helper and assistant is somehow a demeaning role. It's not very uh, important. It's not very significant. And so, uh, uh, you know, that old kind of traditional theology really is a very uh, uh, misogynistic. It's hateful towards women. But you see, if you, if you think that way, then what do you do with the passage in the Psalms where it says that God is our helper? God is our aidser. See, if being an aidser is inherently something that is insignificant, or if being an aidser is something that somehow is not very important or is demeaning, then what are you saying about God when the Scriptures say that God is an aidser? See, if being an aidser is demeaning, then you're saying that God is demeaned. But the Scriptures don't say that. They see the role of being a servant or a helper as one of the most exalted roles possible. It's only arrogance that says that the role of a servant, the role of a helper, the role of an assistant is uh, insignificant or irrelevant. So in terms of point number seven, we see that both man and woman, male and female, are equally image bearers, but they are, they are distinguished in terms of their role. Well, now we've looked at images as it's used in the early part of Genesis, but it doesn't stop in Genesis. When we get into the New Testament, there are some fascinating things said about the image of man, and here it relates it to Christ. The believer is to be conformed to the image of Christ after salvation. See, the image isn't destroyed at salvation at a, when Adam sinned. The ad, image wasn't wasn't destroyed, it was defaced. What happens at salvation and on the basis of the word of God is that image starts to be restructured and to be brought back and to be recovered. And the believer is to be conformed to the image of Christ and to represent Christ as an ambassador on the earth. Notice how that representation as an ambassador of Christ is related to the initial role as representing God as a vicegerent over the creation. Genesis um, 2.15 talks about the fact that the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the key word there for uh, cultivate and to keep means to work it. That cultivate is from the... Uh, Hebrew word avad, which means to work or to serve, and the word translated to keep is the word shamar, meaning to guard. So man was given responsibility and work, uh, work responsibilities prior to the fall. Work isn't the result of sin. I know that's hard for some of you to understand right now, because work has been affected by sin just like everything else has. But there was responsibility uh, prior to the fall in the garden, and that's related to man's role as an image bearer. Genesis 2.19, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. So this is the role of man is to work over creation and to control creation. The act of naming in the ancient Near East was tantamount to exercising control and dominion over something. Now, there was only one problem in the garden, and that was one, uh, there was only one prohibition. Man was free 
to do um, whatever he wanted outside of one prohibition. He's there to, uh, let me skip ahead here. He is placed in the garden, and he is free to do whatever he wants to. He has freedom to decide the best way to name the animals. God doesn't tell him you're going to name that strange-looking thing with the long nose an elephant, and you're going to name this other thing with the horns on its nose a rhinoceros. God gives man the freedom to make those decisions. So within the structure that God establishes, there is freedom to operate. That's why later you can say that man clearly has free will, even though God is sovereign, because God has decided that in human history his sovereignty uh, will be limited so that the creature can have a restricted amount of, of freedom so that the, scripture, the uh, creature can be free. Now, there is a prohibition in the garden, and that is that the creature is prohibited from eating the fruit of the knowledge of the tr- uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, as we look at the character of God in the eighth point, I was just relating that to the concept of image in the New Testament, or in the ninth point. Excuse me. Eighth point related that, and then the ninth point. I want to expand it a little bit. Let's look at the characteristics of the image of God as they're developed in the New Testament in relationship to the believer. So the, I want to look at three verses, Colossians 3.10, Ephesians 4.24, and 2 Corinthians 3.18. In Colossians 3.10, Paul states that after salvation we have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So here we read that this new image is to be renewed in the arena of knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. It's not merely an intellectual capacity, but a way of thinking that is related to true knowledge or the revelation of God. We have to start thinking as God thinks. We have to think according to how God has revealed himself. So this means that part of the image is a renewal of our intellectual ability, our thought processes according to truth, according to absolute truth. So the process of thought is part of the imageness of God. In Ephesians 4.24, we're told to put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, same concept, that has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So the concepts of righteousness and holiness have to do with moral capacity, moral capacity. The emphasis is on uh, man's integrity. So if the likeness of God is being renewed according to righteousness and holiness based on the truth, then we know that the image of God has to do with a moral quality. And then the third verse that we find this in is 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And here we see that there's a dimension of divine glory related to the image, and that... Part of the image is to reflect that glory, and as we are being renewed in our spiritual growth, we reflect that same glory, not the kind of glory that was evidenced by Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, which was a brilliant glory that related to the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. But this is the glory that John spoke of in John 1.14, where he says, after Jesus turned the water into wine, he talks about the wedding, and it was there the first time Jesus did miracles, and we beheld his glory. Glory has to do with character. And the character that's displayed there at the... At the uh, uh, at that marriage feast was his compassion toward man as he uh, fulfilled the request of his of his mother. So this is what the image of God relates to, four categories. The self-consciousness of man, he knows he exists, he knows he's distinct from the cre- creatures, and this is characterized by the phrase, I am. Second, he has reasoning power or mentality, he thinks. So this is the phrase, I think. Third, he has that moral quality. 
So there is moral reasoning. He knows right from wrong. This is in his conscience. And this is characterized by the phrase, I ought. And then fourth, he is volitional. He makes decisions. There is self-determination in man. I will. So four phrases. I am reflecting his self-consciousness. I think reflecting his reasoning ability, his mentality. I ought reflecting his moral capacity. I will reflecting his ability of self-determination. Now, the Bible says that man is not only made up of this material, physical body that's formed from the dust of the ground, but this image is comprised of two immaterial aspects. The one that we just mentioned, that is the I am, the self-consciousness, the mentality, the conscience, and the volition, that has to do with what we call the soul. But there's another immaterial aspect, and we see that. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, there we read, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man is comprised of three components or three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Now, we've studied this in the past, and I remind you that sometimes soul and spirit are used in an extremely generic or vague manner with just a broad general meaning, and sometimes spirits, just the term spirit can stand for the immaterial part of man. Sometimes the term soul can stand for the immaterial part of man. Sometimes the word spirit reflects his thinking ability. Sometimes soul reflects his thinking ability. These terms can be used in different ways, but in this passage, it's clear that Paul distinguishes them. Even though there's a lot of overlap, and I'll give you a picture in a minute to help explain that overlap. Even though there's a lot of overlap, they have distinct qualities. Hebrews 4.12 also makes this same distinction. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. Even though soul and spirit may appear inseparable, and in some passages are so close We can't distinguish the difference. The Word of God makes it clear that there's a difference. It divides between the function of the soul and the function of the spirit, the human spirit. Now, remember what I said earlier about the fact that God created things, and he initiated vocabulary, and he, as the creator, has the right to define the meaning of words. See, we live in an age when when words are being assaulted, on a daily, especially words from Scripture. I'll never forget learning something when I went to Russia the first time. And that is that when when the communists took over in Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1918, that one of the first things that Lenin did was to go through and take about 12,000 words out of the Russian vocabulary. See, it's an enormous language. And there were a lot of antiquated words there, but a lot of the words they took out of the dictionaries were words that were necessary to understand the Russian Bible. And Satan attacks Christianity by destroying its vocabulary. And we've seen this in the last um, in the last uh, 150 years. A good word like uh, like Pentecostal. Every believer is a Pentecostal. Why? Because the church began at Pentecost. That's a good word, but it's been co-opted and given a distorted meaning by certain sects within Christianity. Same thing with holiness. Holiness is a great word. We're to be holy. Most people don't understand what holy is anymore. It's lost its meaning. It's become diluted. But there was a certain segment of Christianity that, that had a distorted view of holiness and emphasized that, and they became holiness churches. See, Satan destroys the meaning of certain words by by using people to come along and take that word twisted, give it new meaning. And then when you go back and read that into the Scripture, you get a distorted interpretation. Uh, charismata, that's a great Greek word. It refers to the grace gifts or spiritual gifts that God gives us from charisma, meaning grace. But it's been perverted by the charismatics. See, God uh, or Satan attacks divine viewpoint by attacking vocabulary. Today we live in a world when people talk about spirituality all the time. They talk about, oh, that person's spirit is so nice. And so in everyday usage, words like spirit and spirituality become distorted and they don't have 
any anything to do with what the Scripture says. So we have to let the Bible define what soul and spirit are. 1 Corinthians 2.14 makes a distinction between a person who has a soul and one who doesn't. In the English it reads, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, but the word translated natural is the Greek word sukikos, which means soulish. Suke from the Greek suke meaning soul. The soulish man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And there we realize you have to have this human spirit in order to understand the things of God. This is further seen in passages like James 3.15, that this wisdom is not that, referring to human viewpoint wisdom, is not that which comes down from above, but is, that is this human viewpoint wisdom, is earthly, natural, sukikos. It's not related to the spirit at all, and demonic. But our clearest definition comes in Jude one nineteen. In Jude 19, we read, These are the ones, referring to unbelievers, who cause divisions, worldly-minded, terrible translation. It's the Greek word, once again, sukikos, meaning soulish, those who don't have a human spirit, devoid of the spirit. And literally in the Greek, we've studied this, the phrase means not having a spirit. So unbelievers are born without this spirit. So let's put it on a chart. Man has three parts. Man has three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Here's the human body. We all have a physical human body. It's a physical machine. Inside that physical machine, there's a human soul that runs the machine. It's made up of four components, a self-conscious that I am, the mentality I think, the volition I will, and the conscience I ought Those are the four elements of the soul. Now, when God created Adam, he not only had a soul as part of his image, but he had a human spirit as part of his image. And the two work together like a hand in a glove so that that the human spirit is that quality which enabled his self-consciousness to not only relate to man as I am, but as God as the creator. It enabled his mentality to think God's thoughts after him and to think as God would have him to think. It enabled his volition to focus on God's prohibitions, and it enabled his conscience to know the difference between what was right and what was wrong. But what happened was that Adam disobeyed God and ate from the fruit. In Genesis 2.17, Scripture says, that if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Well, the day Adam ate of the fruit, he didn't die physically. He died spiritually. Something happened. Now, see, if you, if you don't believe that man is created in three parts, as some theologians don't, they just want to talk about the immaterial part in a very vague and general way, then watch what happens. Watch what happens. If you, t- you talk about spiritual death and you don't have a re- real human spirit, then what died? What died? Nothing died. I mean, it just becomes an empty figure of speech. But what happens is, watch the figure. When when Adam died, he lost the human spirit. He still has a mentality, self-consciousness, conscience, and volition, but now he doesn't have a human spirit which enables those elements to relate to God. So he's still in the image of God, but it is now defaced. Furthermore, there's a sin nature that is going to further distort his thinking, his volition, his conscience, and his self-consciousness. The only solution is to have a, is to have a rebirth, a new birth, which provides a human spirit, and that's what happens at salvation. So what happened at the fall of man is that man changed. He didn't lose the image of God, but it became defaced in spiritual death. So there were consequences to that decision that Adam made, and he became dead. Ephesians 2, 1 states, And you were dead, talking to believers, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's a positional term. They were in their trespasses and sins because the deliverance of Christ 
death on the cross had not been applied. It was in those sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, that is, the lust of the sin nature, indulging the desires of the sin nature and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Man acquired a sin nature at the fall, which is passed down genetically from father to offspring. Well, what basically happened at the fall is that righteous God, who had created man, uh, has that fellowship with his creature destroyed. God God created man to have fellowship with him. Man is in God's image, therefore he can relate to God. He can understand God. He can fulfill God's uh, tasks for him. But what happened when Adam sinned and disobeyed God by eating the fruit, that image was defaced, and man lost his ability to have a relationship with God. In effect, a barrier is erected between God and man. Now, this week and next week, we're going to look at uh, the components of that barrier and how that barrier is problem is resolved. The first problem in the sin barrier is the basic problem of sin. The basic problem of sin, Romans 3.23 states, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the basic problem. We fall short of God's character, God's demands. As a righteous God, God can have a relationship with man or with his creature only when that creature is also righteous. Then there's the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is spiritual death. Genesis 2.17, you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll surely die. Romans 5.12 states, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and that thus death spread to all men. That's the second problem. The third problem is the character of God himself. God is perfectly righteous. Therefore, when man sins... Uh, man cannot have a, because man is a sinner and lacks perfect righteousness, he cannot have a relationship with God. The fourth problem is spiritual death. He lost that human spirit. That's a quality of man that is no longer there. He's not born with it. He can't automatically know God. He is spiritually dead, so God has to solve that problem. The next problem is his lack of righteousness. Man has uh, uh, lost righteousness, and then finally, his position in Adam. He is positionally related to the head of the human race, and because he is in Adam, Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15:22, in Adam all die. So this is the problem. It's a m- m- manifold problem. It is not just a simple problem of having disobeyed God. One of the reasons people have trouble understanding eternal security is because they don't understand the depths of the problem. Therefore, they don't understand the the extent of the divine solution. And because they don't understand everything that happened at salvation, they think somehow they can lose it. But once you understand the depths of the problem, and once you understand the extent of the solution, then you realize why salvation is a free gift that can never be lost, that it can't be earned, it can't be deserved by man at all. There's nothing man can do to uh, gain it, and that it had to be something that was done completely by someone else. Jesus Christ died on the cross to provide that solution so that by faith in him alone, faith alone, no works, no ritual, no morality, nothing to help, Christ paid the penalty in full at the cross. Christ did it all so that man can have a relationship with God. So we'll come back next time. We'll look at the barrier in a little more depth, and then we will look at the solution with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word once again, to realize uh, the extent of your manifold grace to realize how complex our salvation is and yet how simple. That all we need do is put our faith alone in the completed work of Christ on the cross and we have eternal life. 
not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy, you provide a perfect salvation. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue our study of salvation, you will help us to understand these things and have a greater appreciation for all that we have and all that you have done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.